This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with David White. David is a passionate speaker, poet, and the author of the Sounds True audio learning program, Clear Mind, Wild Heart, and most recently, What to Remember When Waking, The Disciplines of Everyday Life. This is one of my favorite Insights at the Edge conversations. David and I spoke about exile, as a core human competency, the conversational nature of reality, vulnerability as enhanced perception, and the invisible support that surrounds us. Here's my conversation with David White. Welcome, David, to Insights at the Edge. I, I want to share with you a little bit about what happens behind the scenes here at Sounds True which is our copywriters listen to new programs that we're putting out. And yeah. they take notes on them, and then they write the, the package copy. And before this conversation, I asked our copywriter, Grayson, if I could read his notes. And he said, yeah, sure, you're going to love this program, Tammy. And it was completely blew my mind. And I was like, okay, let me read the notes. And I'm reading his you know, 14 pages of detailed notes on what to remember when waking, disciplines that transform in everyday life. And I'm serious, David, I'm underlining four or five items per page. And what is striking me is how original the program is, and how uh, fabulous I found that, and how fresh, and how rare. And I wanted to begin by asking you about originality, and where you think it comes from in a writer or a poet and in yourself? Well, I suppose it comes from this edge um, identity, this, um, this frontier conversation that, that I talk about, but it's, it's in many of our great traditions. And the understanding is that, uh, is that there's a conversational nature to reality, I suppose. So, in other words, whatever you want to happen will not happen. <laughs> um, but equally, whatever the world wants to happen uh, for you will not happen either. And what happens is this meeting. And it's in that meeting that you overhear yourself being surprised by your reality, by the larger context that you haven't yet explored so you're trying to, I often say in poetry, you're trying to overhear yourself say something you didn't know you knew. And, uh, and you're trying to speak it out loud in the world so that it can be known consciously. So there should be a lovely sense of surprise when you're working at that edge and a sense of being gifted. And often, you know, people will say, well, I didn't write that piece, it just wrote itself or or I, I, I felt as if I was the recipient of some kind of grace. And, uh, 
and that's and that's uh, uh, true in many senses. But it also couldn't have happened without you being present with your your particular contribution to the conversation, your particular presence, and the way you hold that conversation. So I often say, uh, don't try to be original. <laughs> um, that usually ends in disaster. Uh, in fact, Coleridge said, no poet begins in philosophy or they write very bad poetry. Uh, but every poet becomes a philosopher. So don't try to be original. Just put yourself at that frontier, at that edge, and it should take care of itself. You should be surprised by what you say. And uh, I have to say, I read uh, a condensed version of those 14 pages. And by the way, I'd love to see the 14 pages. Okay. Um, uh, and I was surprised myself by what I'd written. Uh-huh. And uh, the, you know, the recording itself was a beautiful immersion, partly because uh, we were almost marooned in that recording studio for three days by snow. And the recording studio, studio is in a beautiful geographical position on top of the very, one of the very highest hills on Whidbey Island. And we got unusually deep snow, and it was only by dint of my having a, a, a Land Rover that I was able to get up there actually every day. And so there was a wonderful sense of, uh, of both being held, you know, but also being in a kind of crucible. And so it was a very intense three days, and I, uh, uh, I couldn't remember much of it after I'd, after I'd come out of three days, but uh, um, uh, everyone who was recording it seemed to be very happy. So. so if originality is something that can't be manufactured, but is a natural outcome of this frontier identity, can yeah. you tell me more about how I live at the frontier? Well, you know, it can't be manufactured, but that doesn't mean to say you don't use your will and your focus and your sense of presence. You need to be in the conversation. The old Latin root of that word conversation is conversatio, and it really meant a kind of living with, in companionship with, you know, as if, so you're having a conversatio with your, your spouse or your partner, you know, at home every day. There's a living with, whether it's spoken out loud or not. And so there's an equal kind of conversation with silence and with the particular way you as an individual ask the question of life. And so you've got to find that contact point as an individual. Where am I interested? Where, in a very short time, uh, do I become passionate once I've opened up that initial interest? What do I have energy for? And will I have faith enough, actually, to spend enough time that I can open up that door into what, to begin with, is a new territory, but eventually becomes your new home. You know, one of the difficulties of this conversational identity is that you, you have to learn to live with the unknown, in a way, just as you have to learn to live with another person or with other persons in, in human social existence. Uh, the interesting thing is that that unknown is, is, uh, has a life of its own, but it's also... In, a, in an ancient kind of mystical Eckhartian way, Meister Eckhartian way, um, is given life by the way you actually pay attention to it. So um, one of the poems I work with is, is a poem called Start Close In. And that's about find, finding this ground of your own. You know, start close in, don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing, close in. 
the step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know, the pale ground beneath your feet, your own way to begin the conversation. So you're learning how to find your own place, but you're not doing it just so you, in a kind of um, me-generation way, can become the greatest me in the world. <laughs> you're, you're doing it in order to find the ground of your own attentiveness to the rest of the world. So you've got to find the way that you naturally pay attention and the way you can naturally deepen that attention uh, so that the world will, will come back to you. And this is actually, in all of our great traditions, it's, uh, it's in the Zen tradition uh, where Dogen Zenji says, uh, if you go out and confirm the 10,000 things, this is delusion. If you go out and confirm the 10,000, if you name everything, this is A, B, C, D, E, that's how that all belongs together, that belongs to that, this is quadrant A, quadrant B, and I've got the whole thing worked out as a system. You know, he's saying, this is delusion. If the 10,000 things come and confirm you, this is enlightenment. And Meister Eckhart says it in a different way out of the Christian mystical tradition. He says, you must go out of yourself so that God can come into you. And that going out is, is a fierce kind of attention to what, to begin with, seems other than yourself. And there's lovely byproducts to that because you actually, when you're really paying attention, the beauty of the world starts to come alive again. The greens in the world and the blues and the you know the austerity of the mountains in Colorado of the or the yeah the beautiful density of imagery in the English countryside start to speak back to you and nourish you in and of themselves whether they're useful to your life or not so um it is a kind of there is a beautiful kind of physical sensuality to at first when you start reading into it or looking into it seems like an intellectual abstract yeah now, there are a couple things, David, I want to go back to and ask you about. When yeah. you were saying start close in, take yeah. the first step, not yeah. the second or the third, the step you don't want to take. Why is yeah. the first step a step I don't want to take? Well, maybe I want to take the first step. Uh, then it's probably not the courageous step. Um, one of, you know, uh, if you understand the phenomenology of the way we make human identity, we're constantly making these contingent identities. Let me uh, uh, just pass that one out a little bit, because I'd say in the early stages, almost always, you're trying to take the third, fourth, fifth, or even fifteenth step that will abstract you from the necessary physical presence and courage for you to get into the fierce center of the conversation. There are great parts of us which are, are rightly afraid of that confrontation and that presence partly because as soon as that presence is made its, itself known, then enormous parts of you are going to disappear. They're not going to be wanted anymore. As uh, my wife, who's a very insightful uh, psychiatrist, says, uh, why is it so difficult to claim your own happiness in life? That's a great question in itself. Why is it so difficult? She asks it as a rhetorical question because she answers it in the next sentence, and she says, because... If you did claim your happiness in life, then large parts of you would immediately be unemployed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they'd have to go off and be retrained uh, to do something else. Um, when you investigate, I find, when you investigate the way you are in the world, you'll find that you're actually afraid 
of the necessary central conversation. And it's because it leads to some kind of disappearance or death, a kind of falling away of what is extraneous, and an emerging of a kernel which is not yet fully known inside you, kernel, F-K-E-R-N-E-L. Um, it's a... Um, it's a center which is as much unknown to you as the outer world, in many ways, is a mystery to you, too. And so this is where, why in, in the early parts of the uh, recording, I work a lot with making a friend of the unknown and, uh, and building a relationship with what cannot be spoken, um, but what is, in many ways, like a physical beckoning uncertainty. And one of the things that poetic tradition is very good about and very kind of compassionate about is that it says it doesn't matter how much you know, really, uh, around the specifics of your future life. As long as you can feel that gravitational pull, and as long as you can speak it, then you're on your way home. And the interesting dynamic is that sometimes you only understand your conversation through exile and feeling really far away from yourself and from your world. And if you look into the tradition, at least the way I see it, the great poets, the great religious teachers, and many great artists, you know, are, are saying all you've got to do actually is enunciate the exact nature of your exile. And that will open up the door to your conversation because there's no one else in the world that feels exiled in the way you do. There's no one else who feel, who can feel far away from things with exactly the same coloration and tonality that you do and therefore you must have faith in whatever you're presented with um, and many times in life for us it's to do it's to do with the way we've forgotten or we're far away from the conversation or we're living out what was once a conversational identity but has become someone impersonating themselves so we need to go a little bit more into this idea of the conversation, because I, I want to really make sure that I'm understanding what you mean. Yeah. You know, at first you were talking about reality having a conversational nature, and that made yeah. sense to me in terms of, you know, I have these ideas that I want, and then I get feedback from all kinds yeah. of people about what's actually going to happen here, and it keeps going back and forth. But now you're talking about an inner conversation and some central conversation, and I'm not quite tracking... I mean, I could have a lot of conversations with myself, yeah. David. You know, there's you know gajillions of me in here. Yeah. Uh, what conversations are useful, not useful, and, and how do I know if I'm in this fierce central conversation? Well, I'd say the diagnostics of that fierce central conversation is that everything starts to make sense in your life. For instance, you know, to use a practical um, example. Very good. If you're a writer or you've got some form of artistic discipline, you know, and you say, well, I'll get to it when I've done my work during the day, you know, when I come home. Or I'll get to it when, I ha when I've done this project at work and I've got a little bit of space. I'll get to it when I have enough money in the bank. I'll get to it when I've retired. Um, or even, you know, I'll, I'll do all my chores in the morning and when that's done, I'll get to it in the afternoon. You're living a life of contingency, and it's very difficult in the afternoon to actually change your identity. You can do it, but you're lucky if you can. Um, you have to change your identity back to this initial, original, conversational focus. If you tend to the things that are most important to you first, 
you don't actually need to spend much time. You can spend even just 20 minutes or half an hour, uh, an hour, you know, and as you get further into it, perhaps a couple of hours, and the rest of the day and all your other chores, including getting the curtains cleaned and, and uh, cleaning out the refrigerator and getting the car to the garage, you know, to be, to be uh, worked on, all of, all of those things actually can take on a kind of delight instead of something that's standing in the way of your real life. And so one of the things we have to learn in life is, is what is my core conversation? Of course, that's one of the great um, pedagogical questions when you're growing up through your teens and into your 20s and 30s, uh, is finding out, well, what is my conversational frontier? And the only way you find it out is often by making a lot of mistakes and, and getting into relationships that aren't good for you, getting into work that's not good for you, or doing the work in a way that's not good for you. But eventually, if you're sincere, you start to get closer and closer to what is real in your life. But you also, as you're doing that, must gain self-knowledge. Otherwise, there'll be a place you come to where you're just too afraid of taking the next step. And this is what delineates, you could say, the serious practitioner, the serious artist, the serious conversationalist, uh, from those who are constantly throughout their life on the periphery and never seem to be able to actually step into the core. And that core is where parts of you actually start to shrive away, to disappear, to be shaved close, and you get this sense of a nucleus. And it's not a... Uh, you know, this kernel, this nucleus, this uh, creative crucible is not something that exists just by itself. So when you're talking about this creative conversational core, it's, it's something that's working with all the phenomenology of life around you. It's constantly looking, hearing, seeing, and creating this, this identity, this frontier identity, where you're partaking of both at the same time, what you think is you and what you think is not you. So, uh, continuing with this idea of a, a real-life example to yes. elucidate what you're saying, I'm wondering if you could talk some from your own life, what would be a central conversation that's happening now or maybe happened in the recent past that birthed a new identity in you? Well, um, um, let's see now. What would I choose out? There's plenty to choose from. Um, the first image I get is of uh, a book of poetry, the last uh, standalone book of poetry that uh, wasn't, uh, you know, the collected poems, River Flow, but everything is waiting for you. And that was written out of uh, the grief and loss of my mother, um, a kind of loss of a central uh, foundation in my life. And it was uh, in many ways about, you know, the times looking after her beforehand and the uh, necessity to travel to Britain and be with her and looking after her with my sisters and, and uh, the local community and my father. And then it was also about her death and her loss. I found that, you know, the necessity to speak about it was not, you know, in a social sense, but to speak about it on the page was incredibly powerful inside me. And I felt if I hadn't have sat down and written about it, I... I would have created a sense of myself that was very far away from life, you know, and very afraid of life. I think, for instance, one of the dynamics that occurs 
around losing someone really close to you is that part of you actually says, well, God, you know, if this is the way the game is played, then I'm not playing it. Mm -hmm. If these are the rules, I'm not participating. Part of a human being can't believe how much loss there is in the average life. And so one of the tenets and hallmarks of real healing from a grief or a loss is that you actually start to come out and play again. You start to make yourself visible again in the world. Um, you start to reach out to others. And you're not caught in this necessary initial hermetic enclosure where you're, you're finding shelter, you know, because you've been hurt in such a very powerful way. And so I found that... Um, you know, the ability that poetry gave me to stay close to the central necessary conversation took me through, in about six months of writing, took me through what might have taken six years, you know, or six decades if I'd have been given them, that it was just so good for me to be able to stay on that conversational frontier, on that edge, with my mother. And, and all kinds of beautiful mercies came out of it. You know, the fact that during the writing where I was able to articulate how beautifully my mother had brought us all up, you know, I also realized how imprisoning the word mother is for a woman, that one of the things I had to do was to, um, was to give away my mother as my mother. And this really extraordinary intuition that whatever she was involved with now, you know, and of course every human being has this imagination of where someone has passed away to or not whether or not there's an actual reality behind it but my intuition that whatever my mother was involved with now after she'd gone um it was it had nothing to do with us that was incredibly radical actually when i when you've held this person there's no one at the center of your life whether you have a close relationship with them or, or not or whether you've fallen out or your social enemies almost it doesn't matter there's no one closer to the center of your psyche than the person who actually gave birth to you and so to be able to get to that core and to give my mother away to whatever life allowed me to claim you know a new form of freedom in my own life but strangely enough it also gave me a sense of of the way it was necessary actually to mother others when they when they needed it. And I mean that in the best sense of mothering. Um, particularly in contemporary American society, mothering has a kind of pejorative aspect almost to it. But there's a beautiful necessity for us to mother others when that mothering is needed, you know. And of course, to father others in other circumstances too. Um, and of course, it takes a bit of skill to know when that's, uh, when that's necessary. I'd say that was a very... Uh, a very uh, intense and powerful meeting I had with something I would never have voluntarily invited into my life. But it, it called on everything I had and uh, called me to be equal to a revelation that would have been frightening to my ordinary, everyday, peripheral social identity. Yeah. Interesting, one of the lines that I underlined in these 14 pages of notes on the new program was that the leading edge of ourselves is often an irrational part of ourselves. Uh, yes, uh, I'd say that it's, 
it's irrational only in the sense in that it can't be defined by the person it's leaving behind. You know? um, I think eventually you do find there's a greater kind of intellect, intellectual context, which can't be recognized when you're in the initial stages of a new phase in your life, um, where you're pushing yourself and focusing and things are starting to happen that you can't, can't quite define. And in the early stages, there's a lot of danger in this because you can pull away from it thinking you're losing control and uh, you'll be um, drowned by what you're actually paying attention to. And it's at that point that you both need to focus more intensely, but you also need to ask for help from other people who've been through this. And you could say that poetry and the poetic tradition is a great has a great deal of help in it as well as our uh, great uh, contemplative traditions too and that you can go to some of these people you know whether it's Anna Akhmatova in Russia great Russian woman poet or whether it's Meister Eckhart or uh, the uh, Kabbalah you know there's lots of help in the world for us and of course that's another great theme of the uh, what to remember when waking is that you're not alone in this and by definition, if, if there is a, if the underlying nature of reality is conversational, there are all of these other elements, all of these other helping hands in the world, uh, without which you can't actually claim your happiness. Now, what would you say to somebody who's in a faithless place at the moment and hears that? There's all this help, there's all this possible assistance, and they're like, yeah, I don't feel that. Uh, uh, well, if uh, it depends, I mean, uh, the mode of your voice there was one of, of utter boredom. So, if it's utter utter boredom, then probably you you it's a it's a kind of defence. You know, the person would have to get out of that themselves. It's very hard unless you were close in with them. You know, a parent or a sister or a brother, and you knew their psychological weak point, so that you could move them along a little bit. <laughs> You'd want to leave them to themselves until they actually got into such a state of difficulty that they'd actually want to get out of it. But if a person is saying, I just don't feel it in a more desperate way, then, uh, you know, I, I would give them the same advice I would give to a writer, which is you then just write about the way you don't feel it. Um, that's mm -hmm. the closing conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, take the first step, not the second or the third work with what exactly what you're presented with the nature of your own exile at the moment and uh, you find you know to begin with you don't know how to get in there at all but as you learn skillful means you know the contact point of the conversation after a while once you realize that what you're doing you can get through it incredibly quickly uh, if you read um, Pema Children um, she talks about the way that uh, once you've built a practice, then when you start to move into exile in your life or you start to be filled with self-pity, you can catch it very early because you recognize it. You recognize your, your sudden necessity for retreat, for hiding, and you can very quickly bring yourself back to, to the, the central necessity. Yeah. Now, this sense of exile that you're pointing to and yeah. actually redeeming it, in a sense, this was one of the 
parts of the program that I found the most like cold water in the face in a good way. And I want to read uh, this. Very good. I want to read this quote to you and see what you have to say about it. Yeah. A form of enlightenment. This is transcribed from the program. A form of enlightenment may be to understand that you'll never feel quite at home in the world, and you are not meant to. Yes. It's a lovely relief, isn't it? To just, <laughs> just to think about it in that way. And that's the way that it came to me. It was a sudden understanding. And uh, part of it came to me when I was uh, in a very exotic place, actually. I was out in the African bush and uh, watching a kingfisher a Malachite thing, kingfisher, whose feathers are these uh, really primary colors of blue, white, and red, and it was lit up by the evening sun. And I could just feel the kingfisherness of the world, you know, and that there was no other corner of creation that could actually substitute for the kingfisher. And I was, I, it made me think about what it meant to be fully human. And I, I'd, I'd had experiences of this living in the Galapagos for years in my 20s. I suddenly realized that one of the core competencies of being human was that we were the only corner of creation that could refuse to be ourselves. The kingfisher doesn't get to choose uh, to be a crow, you know. And uh, the mountain is just the mountain, the cloud is just the cloud, the tree is just the tree. That's why the natural world seems to be so nourishing to us, because we get an intimation of, of what it might be like just to be ourselves. But as human beings, we have this um, extraordinary ability not only uh, not to be ourselves, but to pretend to be someone else and to hang a mask in front of our real identity. Not and we can even take it a further virtuosic step and forget that we're hanging a mask in front of our face, which you remembered to begin with the first few times you did it. Um, and suddenly you've become the mask and you're actually practicing that identity uh, as a beautiful form of defense against the world. So I think it's quite merciful actually to, to, to think that you can look at yourself and others, you know, and have a sense of compassion about the way that reality is actually very fierce and very difficult that it's quite extraordinary with the consciousness we have of being alive, which many other creatures don't have, um, of loss and poignancy of that loss. Therefore, it's one of the foundational building blocks of real compassion for others. And I, I think, you know, when you meet a, a brother David Stendhal Rest or Father Keating or a, a Dalai Lama, uh, when you're with real authentic presence it's because they understand the the fierce nature of the average human life and the loss that's and the losses the loss and the losses that's involved with it and every human life is is quite magnificent and dramatic and mythological because of of the intensity of what's at stake so once you understand that, you know, and turn your face back towards it, uh, towards your ability to feel exile, towards the necessary human qualities of, of losing and being lost, then suddenly you find a place to stand in it all. And you, strangely enough, find yourself emboldened by it, actually, and more courageous. Because I think as you move closely into that sense of physical 
presence, you realize that you're going to lose it all anyway in the end. You're going to have to give it all away. And no matter how much money you have in the bank, no matter how big your spread is, you know, it's all going to go to other people <laughs> at the end. You know? So why not start practicing giving it away now? But I mean in a, you know, not necessarily in a puritanically saintly way, but just risking it for what is really, really important to you. You know, that central journey that you're on, that edge where you come alive, where you're able to see the beauty of the world again, the beauty in other people. You know, when uh, Sartre said, hell is other people, he was really talking about a, a psychological state of exile. Uh, and the ennui that was there also, I'd say, in a cultural sense, in pre-war friends. Um, but I, I think, you know, that once you actually turn your face towards the phenomenology of loss, then other people are not hell at all. Yeah, They're, uh, they're companions and uh, possible helps. Sometimes the help comes in the form of realizing that you don't want to be like that person at all <laughs> and, and that you don't necessarily want to spend physical time around them. But everything is actually speaking back to us in its own voice and everything is a form of revelation. And these are the things, you know, what to remember when waking is, is about trying to remember that. What are the ways you can physically remember and be present? to uh, what enlivens us and emboldens us and, and gives us presence. So just to ask you, I guess, to explain what you're saying in a slightly different way, if you can stick yeah. with me here. What you're saying is when we discover our sense of alienation, our sense of, I don't fit in, I don't belong, yeah. that this could actually open us up to compassion for other people, an appreciation of what it means to be human, because humans are the only beings that have this kind of alienation, that it's not in nature, and that this could somehow soften us. I mean, you actually call it a core human competency. That's the language that you use in What to Remember. Yes, and it's a competency, I think, Tammy, because it opens up a, a real sense of vulnerability. And I've often said, you know, when you've, I'm, you know, I speak in all kinds of different ways from, from uh, the uh, organizational world to ashrams and religious communities and one of the things you do feel in many uh, transplanted uh, eastern communities into the whether they're yoga communities or uh, you know eastern communities of any kind is is that the whole sense of enlightenment is about creating this fortress sense of yourself where you know exactly what to do all the time and you're completely perfect and you know you've got the spiritual gold medal hung around your neck and as far as I can see it's exactly the opposite enlightenment has something to do with understanding the constant and inescapable nature of your own vulnerability that once you actually turn towards vulnerability not as a weakness but a faculty for understanding what's about to happen you can transform your life in a way which is quite extraordinary. If instead of physically tightening, whenever you feel a sense of vulnerability, you actually teach yourself to turn towards it, and I mean really the physical sense of vulnerability in, in the body, that tightness you might feel in your chest when you're in the presence of someone who's a bully, um, a social bully, you know, that 
vulnerability you feel when you're risking your artistic charms in the world, then something quite extraordinary starts to open up. I have a little piece I wrote, uh, which I think appears on the, uh, in the recording, and it's called uh, The Seven Streams, and it's a place up in the high country of uh, the Burren in County Clare in the west of Ireland. And this place always has a sense of deep rest to me. And at the same time, this introduction to the way you're this ephemeral blow-through of a visitor in life. There's, there's two key lines in it, though, which speak to what I said, and uh, I'll just begin the poem from the, from the beginning. Come down drenched at the end of May, with the cold rain so far into your bones that nothing will warm you except your own walking. With the cold rain so far into your bones that nothing will warm you except your own walking. And let the sun come out at day's end near Schlievneglusha with the rainbows doubling over Mullock Moor and see your clothes steaming in the bright air. Be a provenance of something gathered. Be a provenance of something gathered. A summation of previous intuitions. Let your vulnerabilities walking on the cracked sliding limestone be this time be this time not a weakness but a faculty for understanding what's about to happen stand above the seven streams letting the deep down current surface around you then branch and branch as they do back into the mountain and as if you're able for that flow as if you're able for that flow say the few necessary words and walk on broader and cleansed for having imagined say the few necessary words and walk on, broadened, broadened and cleansed for having imagined. I work with this uh, dynamic actually with uh, hard-bitten executives in uh, the center of international financial companies that um, you need to redefine vulnerability as a, as a quality and not something that you're, you're meant to push out of your life that it's exactly the opposite so hopefully in you know in the recording uh, I hope you know when I learned that myself through speaking it out loud myself around vulnerability and it really helped me in my life so I, I hope it uh, I hope it helps others in the same way can you be more specific there how did it what in your own life how did you become more vulnerable and how did that express itself well I'd say you know just even in close in relationships with a wife and a daughter or a son there are, there are dynamics in life that are constantly, erroneously reinforcing this necessity to be the center of all knowledge in life. You know? and, and this, of course, comes in spades when you're a father or a mother. But it can also come when you're, when you're uh, with a friend and you're doing well in your life and they're not, you know, and, and you find yourself, you have all the answers in life. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, things turn around the next year and it's the opposite. But... Uh, um, you know, I found, for instance, with my daughter that, uh, that I, I started actually looking for the edges of vulnerability in, in my discourse with her um, and actually trying to magnify them. For instance, you know, there's one day where we got into a little spat with one, one another, as you do as a father and daughter, and there was, uh, the conversation ended with me just telling her she had to do something. And she charged upstairs of course and there's the the uh, wonderful and uh, eternal sound of the door slamming <laughs> upstairs and there was the possibility I could have just left it there 
and said, well, she can just do it because, you know, in the long run, I know better and all that. But I realized it was connected to something else. And that this is this dynamic that one of the difficulties of parenting is that you're constantly attempting to relate to someone who's not there anymore. Uh, they're growing so quickly. And you also have this internal heartbreak that they're growing away from you and they're no longer the person who needed you in every facet of their life. And so there are tremendous dynamics that are attempting to stop the child from growing. And so, you know, after, uh, after I collected myself, I, I went up and we sat down and I said, I said, Charlotte, tell me, tell me one way, one thing you want me to stop doing now, you know, as your father. And tell me another thing you'd like me to do more of. And that was a beautiful moment, actually. And it really opened up um, the sense that I was trying to actually speak to her from where she was in her life now. And not someone that I needed her to be. And it was a lovely healing moment. And it came just out of catching myself. And, and in, you know, instead of trying to reinforce the image of the parent who knows and is going to protect your child from everything and protect yourself from it to a, you know, a beautiful kind of, I'd say a proactive kind of not knowing. So that would be, that would be an example of, of moving towards that edge of vulnerability. In the workplace, you know, then vulnerability might look very different. It's not the same kind of vulnerability you would have with a, an intimate partner at home. Usually vulnerability in the workplace has to do with simply admitting that you don't have all the answers and therefore you need everyone's help around the table in order to ascertain what the real pattern is and the best way of going out to meet that pattern and that's really necessary to you know in today's organizations where the world the technical world but also the way people are making their identities through that uh, that technology is changing so quickly so every area of your life all three marriages in your life you know the marriage with another person the marriage with your work and the marriage with yourself all call for a different form of vulnerability and it's it's our job as individuals to find out what that what that vulnerability looks like i'm curious to know a little bit more about the vulnerability with oneself pointers in that direction Well, I'd say that one of the vulnerabilities is the extreme disappointment we have um, around the version of our life we've established uh -huh. against what we set ourselves to create when we were much younger. Yeah. One of the vulnerabilities is putting an arm around yourself and and saying it doesn't look very good <laughs> compared, <laughs> compared to what your best hopes were. You know? yeah. And finding the way through in the midst of it all to start to craft something that's closer to what you want. You know? As soon as you do that and you start to get into the center, the, a lot of the peripheral stuff that you're stuck to starts to naturally fall away. So as soon as you move your focus away from all the ways you're trying to hold the world together, you start to find more, I find more of a leverage point at the center. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of what, the, what, what, what to remember when waking is about is remembering this core conversation, that if you take care of that, 
a lot of what takes enormous will and energy and rushing about on the edge starts to either disappear or take care of itself. And of course, there's a part of us afraid that if we stop taking care of everything, it will fall apart. And luckily, the intuition is entirely correct. <laughs> and it will beautifully fall apart, or it will come back to you at the center in a different way, and you'll re-engage it. So my feeling, you know, as I, uh, as I uh, move along through through uh, the old great pilgrimage, you know, um, of life. My feeling is, is that there's actually just a small contact point for every human being. And that we're mostly diluting our powers in trying to work with life in a way that's too abstracted. And... Uh, that, for instance, you know, you only need a certain amount of money in order to live out your dream in the future. And that you may have millions in the bank, but actually, if you put, took all that millions and, and, and focused it on what you wanted to do, it would actually distort and destroy the spirit of what you're about. That, as an example, you know, if you have millions, there may be only 50,000 that you could take of that and take the initial step with. So for most of us, I would say, this is not true if you're starving, you know, or thirsty without food, running water, growing up in a shack, you know, in the edge of La Paz in Bolivia, you know. But for most of us in the developed world, or the newly rich developing world, we have much more than we actually need in order to take the next step. So it's finding this contact point, finding this crucible, finding the place where, the leverage point where things really happen. And you can take a small step at the center of that pattern and it has enormous consequences. Whereas you could rush around killing yourself, you know, in a stressful way on the edge and hardly move anything at all. So, you know, the central conversation, what to remember is that, is that it's close in it's both right at the center of your physical body, but it's also in the way that that, that physical body, once it's got a sense of, of really powerful focused presence, has effect on other people and is induced to things by other people, that all the energy starts to come. So once, you know, if you, if you take conversation, for instance, as a, as a basis of understanding of reality, then what you're trying to do is create a conversation that will float you along. So you're not having to do all the work. You're just making sure the conversation stays alive. And I'd say that that's one of the defining aspects of a good leader in an organization, especially if you're at the top of an organization or near the top. You are chief conversationalist, actually. And your job is to make sure the conversation stays alive. And where you, you have difficulty with that conversation, you bring in other people to help you. Yeah? And, of course, everyone is a leader in one corner of the organization, even if it's just their own desk. And then you've also got leadership in your own life. So you have to gather all the different parts of yourself, you know, in your personal life around a table, metaphorically. And you can do this just sitting in your chair. <laughs> and you have all of these clamoring voices. 
that your job is to is to ask what is the central conversation, you know, and invite those parts of yourself either to come in closer, you know, and help you out, or to go elsewhere and uh, find a different place to dwell. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm uh, inquiring about what the central conversation is in my life now or at other times, and yeah. what I'm reflecting on is that I'm only able to identify that by really spending some time with myself. Yes. It, it's not like just in the midst of, you know, busy, 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 that that central yeah. conversation becomes apparent. Yes. So part of the disciplines I... One of the disciplines I call for, you know, is, is the necessity to... to uh, a kind of hiving off, you know, and... Uh, I mean, eventually you learn how to bring that back into the workplace and create an internal uh, silence, even as you're speaking with others. But I, I do think it's really necessary to have a contemplative discipline. And that can be just going for a long walk by yourself every day, where you're not simply going over your to-do list and all the uh, things that are preying upon your mind and worrying you to death. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, talking with David White, the author of a new Sounds True uh, six-part series, What to Remember When Waking, Disciplines That Transform in Everyday Life. And David, I'm, I'm wondering as we conclude here, if you'd be willing, it's kind of like asking a storyteller to tell a story or a magician to do a final you know, trick or something like that. It's just so uh, enjoyable to hear you recite a poem. So I wonder, David, if there's a poem or two that you think might illuminate or point to some of the discoveries that we've touched on here in our conversation together. Yes. One thing we haven't talked about much is uh, the theme of invisible help that one of the things we have to learn to do out of that vulnerability is to ask for help. And that the help doesn't just come in a human social dimension, although there's plenty of that, but it also comes from the world itself and from the beauty of the world, whether it's another person's face or the face of a landscape or even the memories we have of people who are no longer with us. As the Irish say, the thing about the past is, it isn't the past. <laughs> and so there are all kinds of elements that are present to us, which are offering us their perspective and their understanding. And I'd say in many ways, uh, comfort. And so this poem is, is about uh, getting yourself out of yourself. So you start paying attention to something other than your own worries or your own necessity to stay alive at all costs. <laughs> it's called Everything is Waiting for You. It's written in the style, actually, of an Irish poet, Derek Mahan, who's one of my favorites. So it's Everything is Waiting for You, after Derek Mahan. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny, hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, 
even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you courage. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you courage. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything, everything, everything is waiting for you. So that would be written in the form of myself giving myself a good telling off. Mm-hmm. And reminding yourself what is first order and reminding yourself how much energy you waste at the periphery which disappears into nothingness yeah and how much energy which is given at the center turns into this beautiful surprising somethingness which is inviting you on and bringing all kinds of other people into your life to share the adventure at the same time I'll finish with this piece. This is called No Path. It's a very fierce little poem because it's about our own ultimate disappearance, but there's, I found a marvelous kind of generosity at the end from the uh, revelation, you could say. One of the great, uh, I suppose, one of the great dynamics at the center of the revelation about our, the essence of life about the way that everything passes away so quickly is that you must therefore be present to it you must appreciate it I lost a good friend of mine a couple of years ago you know he'd be a big soul big fellow and uh, and he loved everything he loved you know food drink good company and I said to myself after he'd gone you know heaven had better be a good place because he was a Catholic theologian too I said, heaven had better be a very, very good place because it couldn't be much better than the way he actually appreciated this place here Mm -hmm. and the way he was alive to everything that was being given to him. So, but this is, this is a poem that takes a line from a famous uh, piece of Chinese poetry called the Hanshan poems or Cold Mountain poems written by a hermit who took his name from Cold Mountain. And so this is a famous line, which has become almost like a koan, you know, one of those great questions, which is supposed to be able to take you all the way to enlightenment. And that line was, there's no path that goes all the way. And I felt this one, this question very intimately, because whenever I walk in the mountains, I spend a lot, as much time in mountains as I can. I always fall in love with the path itself. And I remember traveling in the Himalayas and coming back um, in the times when you actually developed film. (laughs) 
and developing my film and found that every photograph I'd taken was of the path itself, you know, and the way it wended its way through villages or over a path or through the snow. So Hanshan incredibly says, there's no path that goes all the way. So this is the piece I wrote, no path. There's no path that goes all the way. There's no path that goes all the way. Not that it stops us looking for the full continuation. The f one line in the poem, the first line in the poem, we can start and follow straight to the end. The fixed belief we can hold facing a stranger that saves us the trouble of a real conversation. But one day, you're not just imagining an empty chair where your loved one sat. You're not just imagining an empty chair where your loved one sat. You're not just telling a story where the bridge is down and there's nowhere to cross. You're not just trying to pray to a God you imagined would always keep you safe. No, you've come to the place where nothing you've done will impress and nothing you can promise will avert the silent confrontation. The place where your body already seems to know the way, having kept to the last its own secret reconnaissance. The place where your body already seems to know the way, having kept to the last its own secret reconnaissance. But still, there's no path that goes all the way. One conversation leads to another, one breath to the next, until there's no breath at all. Just the inevitable final release of the burden. Just the inevitable final release of the burden. And then, and then, wouldn't your life have to start all over again for you to know even a little of who you had been? And then, wouldn't your life have to start all over? Wouldn't your life have to start all over again, all over again, for you to know even a little of who you had been? David, thank you so much. Lovely. David White, the author of a new Sounds True series, What to Remember When Waking, Disciplines That Transform an Everyday Life. For SoundsTrue.com, I'm Tammy Simon. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. <laughs>